Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, dear listeners, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm recording a full episode on how many reps to do if your goal is hypertrophy or muscle growth with none other than Daniel Plotkin, who's written and contributed to many research studies on this very topic. Daniel, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. But before we start, in case some of the listeners don't aren't as nerdy as I am and don't spend hours reading research every day, I'd like to ask you, like I do all of my guests, who are you? What do you do? And why are you so awesome at it? Yeah, so I'm Daniel Plotkin, and I'm a PhD student at Auburn University, where we study basically why do muscles grow, how do muscles grow, and how best to produce muscle growth. And... I've been a trainer for a little over 10 years now. Why am I great at what I do? Always awkward to answer this question, but I think like most people, if you spend a lot of time doing something and you love doing it and you're obsessed with it, you'll you'll probably get good at it at some point. So yeah, that's my short answer to why I'm good. Maybe not. I think everyone has different skill levels at each specific subtopic of what they do. So I have a lot to learn in some areas and I'm very confident in other areas. That makes a lot of sense. They say that consistency is key. Seems like you're suggesting that consistency and obsession are key. Yeah, I think consistency and a love for the work, because I think it's very hard to be consistent if you don't love what you do. So yeah, maybe not obsession to the point where you're <laughs> neglecting everything else in life, but I think striking a balance that leans in the direction of getting good at that specific thing is probably a very good idea. I completely agree, and um, I just like being dramatic, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Love a little drama, so it's all good. <laughs> Great, I'm glad to hear it, because there will be drama if you're talking to me for an hour. Perfect. <laughs> Anyway, let's get started with my first question. So when I was completing my personal training qualification, the course material was based on the material provided by, well, the guidelines provided by the ACSM. So for the listeners, that's the American College of Sports Medicine. And they tended to suggest prescribing repetition ranges based on what's called the strength endurance continuum that maybe the listeners haven't heard of, but I'm sure that if you could define it for the audience, they will immediately recognize it. So first off, what is this strength endurance continuum? Yeah, so the strength endurance continuum is essentially just describing specificity. So strength rep ranges 
would typically be prescribed based on this continuum in the one to five rep range. Hypertrophy would be in the, you know, anywhere around the seven to 15 rep range and endurance would be 15 to plus really up until 50 reps. So the strength endurance continuum suggested that training within these would at a greater rate or most efficiently. Whether that's true or not, I guess, is the topic of this conversation. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I lost you for a couple of seconds there. So I think part of your answer was cut off. So if you could just repeat it, um, you were saying that the well, where it cut off was right after you said that 15 up to about 50 repetitions would be considered the endurance part of the continuum. Yep. So all I said after that was that the truth of that claim. So training within these specific ranges, if you want that specific adaptation is questionable to say the least. So I think we'll get into that in this conversation. There's definitely a lot more nuance to the topic than you need to train in very low rep ranges for strength in those moderate rep ranges for hypertrophy and those high rep ranges for endurance. There's definitely a decent amount of truth to that rule of thumb, but there's a lot of gray area within that specific recommendation, both at an individual level and just generally as well. And you mentioned that the hypertrophy part of that continuum is 7 to 15. And at the time when I was studying and also when I speak to people now, uh, even now it is believed that rather than 7 to 15, it's even narrower. It's 8 to 12. And uh, where you're lifting what's what usually defined as a moderate load. So I'm wondering if you know where this hypertrophy zone, as it's called, actually come from in terms of the research? Yeah, I think there's a few lines of research that made people who were at least aware of the research point in that direction or believe that that was likely to be a good sweet spot. So it's a combination of mechanistic speculation, some EMG data. So if you look at what mechanical tension is, it's essentially allowing the fiber to experience pulling, for lack of a better term, for an appreciable amount of time and for high threshold motor units, so those motor units that are most likely to grow, to get activated. So you want two things with mechanical tension. You want enough time where there's actin and myosin interacting, and you want enough of a load, or as we'll find out later, enough fatigue, so a hard enough set where those high threshold motor units, those more growth prone motor units, are getting activated. So mm -hmm. the thought was, is that in order to activate those high threshold motor units, you needed to use moderate to heavy loads, but those heavy loads or around three reps wouldn't allow for enough time under tension, mm -hmm. but the moderate loads allow for both enough time under tension as well as activating those high threshold motor units. So the thinking was actually pretty good. It wasn't like they were super far off, but to couple this with the mechanisms, there was also EMG data showing that there's higher 
mean and peak EMG amplitudes from higher absolute loads. So in the moderate to low rep range, you see higher mean and peak EMG amplitudes. Even when you take sets to failure at higher rep ranges, you still see lower mean and peak EMG amplitudes. The problem with this is, is that you can't correlate mean and peak EMG amplitudes to hypertrophy. Mm. We found that out more and more as more and more research has occurred. So there was a combination of mechanistic speculation and EMG extrapolation based on EMG that brought people to a decently logical conclusion that a moderate rep range would be good. However, those are both weak forms of evidence. Using logic, always a good thing. Having mechanisms, always a good thing. But at the end of the day, direct evidence. So randomized controlled trials are going to be the thing that, generally speaking, confirms whether our theories are correct. So even the individuals that were saying this, were they super far off? Like, would you miss out on a whole lot if you just stayed in the 8 to 12 rep range? Probably not. But it definitely was too specific of a recommendation and didn't allow for enough wiggle room, which now we know, and I don't know if I should spoil it, but anywhere between five, even up to probably around 30 to 35 reps is similarly hypertrophic as long as sets are taken to or close to failure. Oh, we can spoil it. I've actually mentioned it in other podcasts as well. I've just never had a deep dive into the specifics and also practical applications of these uh, very large repetition range for hypertrophy. So what you said is really interesting. So we know that, or at least um, so far, we know that we need enough time under tension and um, for the fiber to be subjected to enough tension to elicit hypertrophy. And we also need to recruit the muscle fibers, the motor units that are going to be more susceptible to growth. So the original thinking was, well, if the load isn't high enough, then potentially we're not going to recruit the motor units that we want. So going above 12 to 15 reps, probably not ideal. At the same time, if we're doing three reps, that's not enough time under tension in order to, even though we can recruit those motor units. So where they landed was in the middle of these uh, two extremes. So the eight to 12 or seven to 15 range that you've mentioned. Is that a right summary of what you were saying? Yeah, that was perfect. Awesome. So how has our understanding of these um, original, well, how has our understanding changed compared to this original line of thinking? Yeah, so now we know with very good evidence, I think at this point, many studies showing that anywhere from about five to 30 reps produces similar hypertrophy. We have within and between subject designs that have confirmed mm. this. So some studies where one leg was assigned to around eight reps or so, and the other leg that was assigned to about 25 to 30 reps both taking sets to concentric or form failure. And most of those studies show that there's negligible or exactly no differences between legs or between groups. When you compare moderate to high, even low-ish, so six-ish compared to 25, anywhere in that range is similarly hypertrophic, at least when you compare one group to another or one leg to another and stick to those specific ranges. 
Excellent. And then I believe that you also mentioned a caveat when you uh, earlier when you spoiled the 5 to 30 to 35 rep range. And that was that had to do with training close enough to failure. So that brings me to my next question, which was going to be how do variables like proximity to failure and also volume, and you can start with one and move on to the other afterwards as you like, uh, affect? So how do these variables affect the repetition range for hypertrophy? Yeah, so one thing that I'll mention before we get into that is now Mm -hmm. we have evidence, I believe it's one study showing that glycogen depletion in type two fibers, so those high threshold water units was similar in high rep ranges and moderate rep ranges. So that's another line of mechanistic evidence that gives us a little bit more confidence that those high threshold type two fibers are the ones that are being activated even during higher rep sets. So we both have longitudinal evidence, so randomized controlled trials showing similar amounts of growth and glycogen depletion studies showing that those type two fibers that are more prone to growth are actually getting activated during those higher rep sets. But to answer your actual question, how does volume and how does proximity to failure interact? So proximity to failure is probably the much more important one for this specific Mm -hmm. topic, where we have a couple of studies pointing toward the fact that higher rep ranges require a closer proximity to failure where you should probably take those sets one to two reps away from failure or even two actual failure in order to ensure that you're getting the most, and this is important, the most hypertrophy out of each set. You'll definitely still get substantial hypertrophy, but if you're trying to maximize the adaptation, I would likely take higher rep sets to failure or very, very close to failure while those moderate rep ranges or maybe around five to 12-ish rep ranges, you don't have to worry as much about taking that set very close to failure. Three reps less than the tank would probably be a pretty safe zone for that moderate range. I'm less confident in that for the higher range. When it comes to volume, I don't think that we have anything strong suggesting that that matters too much on this front. Although anecdotally speaking, doing a whole bunch of sets at that higher rep range is probably not the most fun time just because it's, you know, relatively uncomfortable. And just, I believe over and over again, getting yourself into that mindset for the high rep range and even the time aspect is probably not the most efficient way to do things, but it can definitely be done if that's what you specifically prefer for whatever reason or perhaps you have some sort of injury that you feel better at those high rep ranges and so on but i don't think there's any strong evidence to suggest that if you do most of your sets at that high rep range it will have a distinct deleterious effect there's a lot of people that speculate mechanistically on the fatigue at those high rep ranges and i think they're definitely putting the cart before the horse and basing it on weak either cell culture evidence or stimulation evidence in animal models that I think are not very good proxies for what we see in humans. I understand. Thank you for the answer. So 
I agree that potentially for programming rep ranges, uh, intensity of effort is more important. Now I'm curious as to, I agree with what you said about, you know, if you're in the five to 10 rep range, probably even leaving three reps in the tank is going to be beneficial for hypertrophy. Whereas the higher in reps you go, the closer to failure you potentially want to go. However, for the listeners, why would you say that? So just based on the evidence that we have, so mm-hmm. we have, I believe, two studies. One is Lasavicius and colleagues, and I'm mm-hmm. blanking on the other study's name, but they had groups that were taking higher reps to failure and moderate reps to failure at mm-hmm. the same time as high reps to leaving three or so reps in reserve and moderate reps doing the same thing. And they found more growth in the moderate group that was leaving some reps in reserve compared to the high rep range group leaving some reps in reserve. So those, I wouldn't say it's the strongest evidence just yet, but some evidence pointing in that direction, showing that if you're going to train at those higher rep ranges in order to safely assume you're maximizing hypertrophy, you probably want to take sets a bit closer to failure. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for clarifying. Now, something that um, a lot of people often question me about is um, the is the relationship between the specific load that you lift and hypertrophy. So, for example, in terms of um, they, so, uh, for example, a lot of people think that the heavier you go, the better for hypertrophy. And we've already established that it doesn't, the load obviously, de- well, the rep range that you're in depends on the load that you're lifting. And we've established if you can build muscle doing five reps or 30, the load doesn't matter all that much. But what I'm wondering is how heavy can you go for hypertrophy in, as in, is how strict do we need to be with doing at least five reps? What counts as too heavy, if anything? Like, for example, could I build muscle with sets of one rep? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think just as, I think we'll get into this. So let's start with the low, what's too low and what's too high. So what's too low, I think it's safe to say that going under five reps is probably not your best bet because what we were talking about, the time under tension, as well as some direct evidence. So my previous lab before I got there, unfortunately, did a study that compared three sets of 10 reps versus seven sets of three reps and looked at biceps hypertrophy and found that there was the same amount of growth. But one group was obviously doing way more sets. So seven sets of three reps versus three sets of 10 reps. So one session would take, you know, somewhere around 15 minutes Mm -hmm. if you bring those exercises and the other would take closer to an hour with longer rest periods. They actually waited three minutes in between sets for the seven sets of three versus about a minute and a half for the three sets of 10. So based on that study and just mechanistically and practically getting under a heavy load right away takes usually more warm-ups, takes more focus, takes more stability. So taking all of that together, the direct evidence, 
the mechanisms and just experience getting under heavy loads time and time again is both more taxing on your focus and just more taxing period. You have to take more rest between sets and so on. It's probably a good idea to spend a lot more time closer to that, you know, seven number or, or even that five or six number and not around two, three, definitely not one and so on. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So then flipping the question on its head, you also mentioned it yourself, how light can you go and still build muscle effectively? So even yourself, it sounds like we're not totally sure how light because you mentioned first 30 reps, but then you said 35 as well. So what do we know about how light we can go? Yeah. So the reason that that I oscillate in that range is because the only study I'm aware of that showed worse hypertrophy from very high rep ranges to failure did them to about it was 15 percent. 15% of 1RM, so they were averaging about like 50-something or so reps, and they did see lesser hypertrophy. So they still hypertrophied, but it wasn't as high as the moderate rep group. Interestingly, well, not so interestingly, because you would kind of expect it, but the BFR group, so the blood flow restriction group that was doing 15% of 1RM grew just as much as the moderate load group, but the 15% 1RM without BFR, so just doing 50 plus reps, grew less in that study. So we mm -hmm. know for fact, or we know with relative confidence that it's probably not a good idea to do a bunch of sets over 50 reps, just again, based on practical considerations and some evidence. But between that 30 to 50 number, am I 100% positive? No. Do I care that much? Also no, because of the fact that I'm probably not going to spend a whole lot of time in that range anyways, because of the practical things we were talking about, having mm -hmm. to go a bit closer to failure on more sets at that very high rep range anyways. So from a practical standpoint, I spend most of my time between 7 and 20-ish, sometimes 25, depending on the exercise. Um, like a calf raise might be a bit higher reps or uh, a machine-based movement. But for the most part, I would say, honestly, the rep range that they gave for that hypertrophy rep range, 8 to 12 is where I spend the vast majority of my time, but I have definitely some exercises in the five to eight and some exercises in the 15 to 20. And once in a while, I'll go 20 to 25, but never really above there unless I have a really, really good reason to do so. I pretty much have the same approach. I was wondering, sometimes I've heard the speculation that you might miss out on some growth if you never spend any time doing um, sets in the five to eight uh, repetition range or in the 15, 20 to 30 repetition range. I'm wondering if there is any evidence suggesting that and what your thoughts are on that theory in general. Yeah, so I know one of the one, another researcher in the field did an informal meta-analysis on this where they just took a bunch of studies that had different rep ranges included compared to ones that did not. Mm -hmm. So, And they found a small effect in the direction of some variation is probably a good idea. I'm definitely not very confident 
in the assertion, but there's some potential mechanistic rationale there where even though the mechanism of action is probably fairly similar between those rep ranges, because as we were speaking about, those high threshold motor units are going to be activated. The environment in which they're activated is obviously different between those rep ranges and how that interacts to create a hypertrophic stimulus could be different. I don't believe we have the evidence to say that, but it wouldn't be surprising if that were the case. Many people try to make it seem like we have a very good grasp of the mechanisms of hypertrophy and how they interact, and we absolutely do not. So being that we don't, and there's not a whole lot of downside to traversing the rep ranges, at least to some extent, I like to do so. But from a practical standpoint, I think there's also a very good reason to do so. I like to progress at least week to week, but mm -hmm. also potent, like definitely every two weeks or so, at least by, you know, at least a pound or a rep. And it's easier to do that when you have the same exercise in twice a week at a different rep range. So if mm -hmm. I have leg extensions and they're eight to 12, two times a week, then the chances that on Friday I'm going to progress from Tuesday is not very high. But if I have eight to 12 Tuesday and 15 to 20 on Monday or Friday, sorry, then I have a much higher likelihood of when I see the exercise again to make progress and see the progress more readily. I think that's just a psychological thing. Would it really matter? Maybe not. But I think psychologically, joint-wise, I feel that many individuals seem to benefit from oscillating the rep ranges. And as we were speaking about, since there doesn't seem to be a distinct downside and people feel better and psychologically get more motivated because it's kind of a different exercise, it's a different range where you're sort of chasing different numbers and so on. So I definitely prefer, especially if an exercise is in my microcycle, so in a week, twice, I'll change the rep range at least a bit for the most part. But do I think there's an extremely strong rationale and a person who has a very, very high inclination or motivation to stay in one specific rep range, I'm not going to force them to do another one. But if they're relatively indifferent, I'll usually oscillate between those three rep ranges that I mentioned previously. Yeah, I would do the same thing. As you said, if it, within the same micro cycle, I program the same exercise, I would typically vary the rep range. If for no other reason than what you mentioned, joint health. I find that most people feel a little bit better if one day they're doing the exercise with heavier loads, so in a lower rep range, and then we don't repeat that fall in the same week, but we go a little bit lighter if we're doing the exact same lift. So that makes sense to me. Speaking of these practical considerations, that, and you've brought up a couple already about how you think about programming rep ranges, I was wondering what other considerations you make when you're programming a rep range for a specific exercise. Yeah, that's a good question. So one that we just mentioned, if it's the same microcycle, getting a little bit of oscillation is usually good for psychology and potentially joints. Another is that certain exercises just lend themselves to certain rep ranges. So a big consideration of any exercise, particularly for hypertrophy, is, is the target muscle the reason that you're stopping an exercise? 
So when I do RDLs, if I do 25 reps on an RDL, my lower back is just going to be screaming, right? But if I do around five to eight reps, my hamstrings feel it, my glutes feel it, and I'm not really limited. My lower back is still obviously working hard, but I'm not limited by my lower back. So mm -hmm. similar other compound movements where I probably wouldn't do a squat at that high rep range. I might be limited by maybe not me personally at the moment because I've been helping my cardio, but tons, <laughs> tons of uh, lifters that I've worked with and um, just people in general on the internet claim that uh, 25 reps of squats, they're stopping because they just can't take it aerobically. So certain considerations sort of preclude a rep range from being the most stimulative from a hypertrophy mm -hmm. standpoint. But other than that, I think there's a pretty wide range of repetitions that can be used for machines, for example. I don't see a super distinct reason to worry too much about being in a specific rep range for an exercise that has a lot of wiggle room. I do tend to not love isolation exercises for like a five to eight rep range. Like I'm probably not going to do a tricep push down for a hard set of five by five or something like that. Do I think it's a big deal? Probably not. I think people worry about that a bit too much, but a consideration is it's kind of weird because a tricep pushdown, I don't mind a five by five. Like I've tried it out just to see, but an overhead tricep, I really do mind a five by five. So mm -hmm. I stay in that higher rep range for basically any exercise where I sort of feel a little bit of joint discomfort. I know there's no distinct upside to being heavy on that exercise. So I'll just go to that higher rep range. So mm -hmm. I think basing it on how you particularly react to that exercise is probably a really good idea while having those rules of thumb in mind. Make sure that the exercise is comfortable and make sure that the muscle is limiting the exercise and not some other variable, either your cardiovascular system or any sort of discomfort. Yeah, I think that's really important to um, highlight for the listeners that Ultimately, if you want to maximize hypertrophy in the target muscle, you want that muscle to be the limiting factor in your sets, not your cardiovascular system or um, anything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, another um, an argument that I'm aware of uh, for not programming isolation less for the biceps or the triceps in the five to eight rep range or very heavy in general is that since those are trained indirectly in compound lifts where you would go that heavy and do that number of reps it might be better for hypertrophy to vary the stimulus on the isolation lifts and do more repetitions what do you think about that yeah i don't think there's a downside and i think most people likely program their isolation lifts for a variety of reasons at that you know moderate to high rep range the way you're hitting the muscles is different. So the muscles that are involved are different from compounds and isolation exercises. So for example, the short heads are probably working a little bit more during a row 
rose in general while the biceps brachii is working a bit more during you know a strict curl for the tricep the long head is working more during isolation exercises while the short head's working more during compounds so i don't think the line of reasoning obviously it's a percentage thing so it's not like one is completely off and, and so mm-hmm. on but generally speaking the line of reasoning is okay i don't think it's uh, completely necessary, but because of the fact that there's a whole bunch of other practical reasons that make it likely that you're going to spend time in the moderate rep range, I wouldn't say that it ends up being a bad recommendation, but it's not a must to be in that you know moderate to high rep range. If somebody enjoys a nice heavy set of curls, I'm not going to stop them as long as it's not under five, then I think it would be counterproductive. Yeah, I don't know whether testing your 1RM on curls is really that conducive to hypertrophy. Yeah, for sure. Although it's done, right? So this is the kind of thing that you sort of think about when a lot of individuals make it seem like your bicep is going to blow up from doing the lower rep ranges when there's strict curl competitions all the time where they stand up against the wall and do, you know, an easy Mm -hmm. curl for a 1RM and you know, the rates of injury are fairly low and these are enhanced athletes, which probably have a higher risk of injury. So I don't think that, I think sometimes the reason why I'm giving a little pushback is that many times people like to think about our bodies as, you know, fragile and not able to tolerate certain things. Oh, make sure you avoid this, or this is going to happen. I like to be more of a movement optimist. So, uh, while I think it's still a good idea to spend most of your time in the moderate range there. I don't want people to think that something distinctly bad is going to happen if they like to spend a little bit of time closer to five or six. I'll push back all you want for one. That's uh, something that I'm trying to get better at where I used to be more of a movement pessimist in that I was probably so aware of my responsibilities as a fitness professional as it pertains to health and safety of my clients that I was way too cautious and then I uh, realized at some point relatively recently embarrassingly um, I thought to myself there are Olympic athletes that put themselves through grueling training programs that nobody will ever be able to do Obviously, the most grueling part is typically short-lived, but they still do it. They live, they actually get ex- excellent fitness ad- adaptations, otherwise they wouldn't be Olympic athletes. So I thought, oh, so then somebody training three times per week, lifting weights for an hour, should probably not worry as much as I'm making it sound like they should worry. And that really changed my approach to how I talk about safety. So it, I'm glad that you seem to be far more advanced than me in that respect so that I can learn from you in this conversation. Sweet. Yeah. I think over time, sort of the progression as a trainer typically follows that, you know, trajectory where initially we're really scared of pushing our clients and scared of certain movements and, you know, rounding all of that stuff that we're unfortunately, honestly taught early Mm, on. Exactly. And then later on, you realize that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be basing recommendations off of like pig cadavers and stuff like that. So (laughs) we all definitely have different um, trajectories, but honestly, similar trajectories where hopefully we reach a point where we understand that people aren't fragile and we can tolerate a lot within reason. And most importantly, I think be optimistic about how 
we look at exercise and what our bodies can do. So even if you decide to choose the safe route for the individual, so lift this way, do it in a way that says this is likely going to be best for performance rather than saying this is going to hurt you if you do it any other way. So just mm -hmm. being cognizant of how words can affect the individual's perception and even pain. So if you say, oh, if you don't do this this way, and once they go heavy, certainly they're going to change their position. They're going to be worried about being in pain or getting catastrophically injured instead of thinking, oh, I was just out of position, no big deal kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. I agree. That is something that I've always been quite conscious about. My background, I have a uh, bachelor's degree in creative writing, and I've been writing stories for as long as I've been alive, basically. So language is really important to me. And I do the job that I do. I'm, I coach people because I want to empower them. So far from me to put it, put exercise in a way that makes them feel disempowered and scared. I mean, the average person doesn't exercise enough. I don't need to make them exercise less. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a good attitude and interesting background in, in that you sort of connected the storytelling, which honestly, like how we perceive exercise and just the world in general is a story about mm -hmm. what, what and how things should be, quote unquote. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's what fostered my interest in psychology. And that's why mindset is such an important aspect of my coaching. Sweet. Anyway, bringing the conversation back to the topic, I have a practical consideration for programming rep ranges that I'm curious as to your thoughts on, which is you mentioned machines and how they can be pretty versatile in terms of rep ranges. What I normally do is I actually give quite a broad rep range for machines as opposed to, for example, for a free weight exercise, I might say five to 10 reps, but for certain machines, I, I might say double that. I could say 10 to 20 because most often, purely from a practical standpoint, machines can go up in weight by five to 10 pounds increments, even more so when, at least in Europe, where all the machines are setting kilograms. So if you're doing 10 to 15 reps, and you reach 15 reps and you try the next weight up, you might find that now you're doing eight. So you're like, oh, I fell out of the rep range and this is bad. Uh, so I just open it up so that people know, okay, it's fine if you keep just adding reps because the next weight up is just um, too heavy for you at the moment. Do you do something similar? Yeah, that's, I think, a very good way about going about things and it allows people to be not scared of leaving rep ranges. So the way I do it is similar in that I'll prescribe a five rep range, so 10 to 15 or something like that. But I'll say, don't worry at all if you end up doing, you know, 12 reps or 13 reps and, and so on. So uh, I think we do things pretty similarly without necessarily, I, I wouldn't necessarily put that wide of a range on paper but for no other reason than just like that's how I did things but I definitely told them verbally that don't worry at all about being a couple of reps below or above it's not going to matter much in the grand scheme of things just adjust as you go I think the only downside there is that if you really 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 cared about oscillating rep ranges 
on every exercise, which I don't think you should care about that. But if you do, then you end up in a situation where the person could be doing more of one or the other. But as we mentioned, that's probably a very, very, very small variable in the grand scheme of things. So I definitely wouldn't worry about it or anything like that. Yeah, fair enough. I typically get around that by doing something like I'll put 10 to 10 to 20 and then I'll put 15 to 25 in the next in the next, next session with the same exercise just to nudge them to go a little bit lighter. But as you say, ultimately, I bring it back to um, the intensity of effort and saying, don't worry where the reps fall as long as what's more important to me is that you hit the intensity of effort that we need. Exactly. Yep. Now, another question that I want to move on to is related to a theory that I'm aware of, according to which you can use specific rep ranges to train specific fiber types. So you've already brought up type two fibers. So it might be helpful if first off you defined the different fiber types for the listeners, because I don't think I've covered them in a podcast just yet. And then if you could give me your thoughts on this theory. Yeah, so this is a big topic. (laughs) Um, Generally speaking, there's three fiber types in humans or three fiber types that are expressed in humans, and they relate to the shortening velocity. So how quickly can that muscle fiber shorten? And Mm so one fibers are considered slow twitch fibers. They shorten more slowly. They're considered to work more aerobically. So they use oxygen for energy while type two a and type two X fibers are fast twitch fibers where they shorten much more quickly. So two a slower than two X, but much faster than one. And you could measure fiber types in a variety of different ways. So depending on how you measure them, you'll actually get slightly different categories of how people define. So you can use shortening velocity, you can use enzyme related metrics, you can use myosin heavy chain. So type one, type two A and type two X actually referred to the specific myosin heavy chain isoform that's found in that specific fiber type. So you can stain for that myosin heavy chain isoform. So with a specific antibody that binds to that specific protein in order to show that that's the fiber type that you have, or you can use weight-based measurements. So different myosin heavy chains have different weights. So you can use a specific technique that allows you to identify the fiber type based on its molecular weight. But long story short, it's really about the velocity of shortening where those type one fibers are slower twitch, those type two A fibers are faster twitch, but not as fast as type two X. And then Mm. there's two B fibers, which are not expressed in humans, but are expressed in mice. So if you happen to read mouse studies that are talking about type two B fibers, those exist, but only in um, other non-human animals. That makes sense. So then what do we know about the, um, the possibility of training specific muscle fibers with different rep ranges? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have much very, very strong evidence on this topic, although we do have some evidence on this topic. And most of the evidence we have currently points toward the fact that if there is a way to specifically target specific fiber types, it's not very much. 
at least within the typical ranges that we use resistance training. So I do not think that basing your evidence on trying to bias any specific fiber type is a good use of your time and energy. The mechanism we were talking about before where those type 2 fibers are going to be innervated at those higher rep ranges lends some credence toward the fact that you're going to have hypertrophy in those type 2 fibers even at those higher rep ranges, whether it's a little bit more specific to type 1 versus type 2A and so on. By the way, you usually get a shift from 2X to 2A when you do any form of resistance training, regardless of whether it's um, a lower rep range or a higher rep range, not 2X. But I don't think that there's any strong evidence to suggest that you can specifically target a fiber type within those rep ranges. There was some evidence that BFR, so blood flow restriction training, could be a little bit more specific to type 1. But again, that evidence is not super strong. It was about two studies that showed this with now, I believe, two or three studies showing that, that it did not occur, so it was not type 1 specific. So I'm optimistic that we'll get more evidence on this topic and more strong evidence on this topic but as of right now i don't think that anyone can be very confident in prescribing any sort of specific plan to target a specific fiber type that makes sense something that i think i heard you say throughout this conversation um suggested to me that you that it's important to target the um, fast twitch muscle fibers, perhaps more so than slow twitch fibers. Can you cl clarify if I misunderstood that or if I got it right, why you would suggest that? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background, the so Henneman size principle is mm -hmm. important principle to understand when sort of broaching this topic in that type 1 fibers are going to be innervated before type 2 fibers in anything that you do. So you start mm -hmm. you start a set of 20. Initially, you're gonna innervate those type one fibers or activate those type one fibers, sorry. Mm -hmm. And as the set goes along, you're gonna need more and more fibers to come online. And as more and more fibers come online, the size principle suggests that the slower, smaller fibers are gonna be activated first and the larger faster fibers are going to be activated last so the reason why i say that those fast twitch fibers should be activated during a set is because those fibers are the ones that are activated as you get a higher proximity to failure and those mm -hmm. fibers so tend to be the ones that are more growth prone. So it sort of goes hand in hand with me saying a higher proximity to failure is also activating type two fibers, which are more growth prone. So I, I sort of oscillated between those two, but I kind of mean the same thing. Make sure you're taking a set close enough to failure because you want to activate those type two more growth prone fibers. Thank you for clarifying. I think we both implied it, but I realized, ah, we're not actually spelling it out. And I thought that making the clarification would be helpful for the audience if they 
never thought of the or weren't aware of Hahnemann's size principle as it pertains to this conversation. So my last question for you before we wrap up is something that we've touched upon already, although not in so many words. And we've talked about progression for hypertrophy. Now, one question that I've gotten before is, is it better to progress via adding reps or via adding load to the bar? And is there a difference? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's a slightly different question than whether high rep ranges and low rep ranges or moderate rep ranges produce the same hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. I ran a study on this specific question, which we named progressive overload without progressing load, which yeah, it's a very clever little, I, I came up with that myself. Thank you. Really? I, I love that. When I saw that, I was like, mm, I like whoever wrote this. Yeah. So uh, we had one group that we tested all of the, these trained individuals, 10 RM, so 10 reps to failure on a variety of exercises, squat, leg extension, seated calf raise, and straight leg calf raise. And then one group only progressed in reps. So they maintained that same load throughout the whole study, while the other group only progressed in load where we tried to keep them in the 8 to 12 rep range or try to get around 10 reps, but we increased the load each time they came in in order to get them to that range. And we found very, very similar increases in hypertrophy. So the hypothesis for the experiment, or at least the thought for the experiment, was that you get a little bit more sensitivity to the amount that you can change load rather than reps. It might take a couple of weeks or at least a week in order to be able to get another rep on a set. But adding a 2.5 on each side or even microplates a one on each side you can do session to session potentially so it was possible that in order to keep up with the adaptations you could be more sensitive with load but that level of sensitivity does not seem to really matter on a physiological level at least in the short time spans we were talking about from a psychological standpoint potentially having those microplates around and progressing just a little bit might be useful. But from a hypertrophy standpoint and an actual adaptation standpoint, it seems like you have a lot of versatility in what you can do. You can stay with the same load and try to progress in reps all the way up to, you know, like you were saying, even that 10 to 20 or even more rep range. We were having individuals that were doing close to 30 reps by the end of the study. So there's a lot of wiggle room in how you can choose the progression. I tend to, as we talked about before, have specific ranges for specific exercises. And then once we leave those ranges, then we recycle back. So a double Mm -hmm. progression model. I think that that's useful for a couple of reasons. One of them, which we talked about, which is just from a sort of psychological standpoint, having those distinct ranges for the same exercise. And just if an exercise lends itself better to, so regardless of the fact that they grew the same amount in the squat, the people in the reps group, the people that were progressing in reps were distinctly more unhappy during the study than the people that were in the load group. So regardless of the fact that the hypertrophy was the same, if I was programming for a client, I would likely stick with the moderate rep range 
or low to moderate range for the squat, while in the leg extension, we have a lot more wiggle room. So long story short, progress in any way you like, but keep in mind that there's variables other than even hypertrophy. If this, if hypertrophy is the same, consider that the actual experience of the individual matters as well. Absolutely. Dear listeners, you couldn't see me, but when Daniel was saying that the rap group was distinctly more unhappy, I was nodding my head and smiling with a pained expression on my face because going above 15 reps is, is too painful for me. One, I can't count beyond 15 when I'm training close to failure. And two, it, it, it's just uh, an experience, as I'm sure if you've trained above 15 reps you, you've had, dear listener. And also, that brings me to a point that I want to make. I don't want anybody to leave this podcast thinking, oh my God, if I train with Nick, he's going to program 10 to 20 reps and 15 to 25. It's on very a very select few exercises where literally, uh, for example, lateral raises with the cable machine, where a lot of my clients are smaller in size like I am, and we don't lift that much. So if the machine goes from five pounds to 10 pounds, you can do... 20 reps with five pounds, then you try 10 pounds and it's like two reps and you're like, and what do I do now? Yeah, so, yeah that's a good example. Yeah, for sure. Lateral raises just drop off like crazy. So that exactly. is a good use of a wider rep range for sure. Yep. Good point. Anyway, Daniel, this was really helpful. And I think I liked where we ended it, where you said you can be flexible with the approach that you take to progression, because I think it's a good summary of the whole conversation. You can be flexible with your rep ranges, because we know that as long as you do 5 to 30 to 35, you are going to uh, promote hypertrophy. What you really want to worry about, in my opinion, more so than the rep range, is your intensity of effort. For sure. Yeah, agreed. I think, yeah, a, a good summary would be that you probably want to spend most of your time in that, you know, seven to 15 range, but don't be afraid to oscillate because of those potential mechanisms and make sure, like you said, that your sets are taken to or close to failure in order to make sure that you're ticking all those boxes. Really good, really good summary. Thank you. Excellent. So, Dear listeners, I'm sure that some of you will want to connect with Daniel or learn more about his research. So Daniel, where can people find you? And if you have anything that you want to plug that you're working on and are really excited about, go ahead. I'll put everything in the show notes. Yeah, so I think Daniel Plotkin, some form of Daniel Plotkin, it's either da Daniel underscore Plotkin for YouTube, uh, Daniel underscore Plotkin for Twitter, and I think just Daniel Plotkin. I might have been the first on Instagram. I'm most active on Instagram currently, but I repost a lot of the stuff that I put on Instagram on TikTok and YouTube Shorts right now, and I'm working on a YouTube series at the moment where it'll essentially be just the principles of hypertrophy, like kind of like a hypertrophy course. I think there isn't really one that I'm aware of that does a really good job of sort of breaking down why and how we know what we know in order to create a good principled hypertrophy program. So I'm excited to, I'm writing a lot of the scripts for that and we're doing some recording. So I think probably early 
next year I'll start rolling those out. So that'll be really fun. And it's probably one of the things I'm most excited about moving forward other than, you know, all my PhD projects and whatnot. So yeah, should be an exciting year next year. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm really looking forward to that, actually. So I, I wrote that in my in my notes just so that I can go back to it next year and look out for your videos. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And uh, thank you again for uh, being here with me tonight, Daniel. And dear listeners, thanks to you, as always, for lending me or well, gifting me, really, with some of your time. And uh, until the next episode. Just so you know, I am going on annual leave for eight days from December 23rd until and including December 31st. Don't worry about the podcast. I will continue releasing podcast episodes weekly as per usual because I have a backlog of them to release. But if you want to start working with me in 2024, this is your time to book a consultation. I'm going to have consults all week between now and next Friday, 22nd of December for people who want to start coaching in January. Now, a lot of my slots have actually already filled out and I'm not going to take any more clients on board than the number that I can dedicate time to because quality of service is really important to me and I do not want it to be diluted. So the sooner you send me your application form, the greater your chance of being able to start in January instead of ending up on my waiting list. Now, as always, all of the relevant links to my website, my application form, my Instagram account are all in the show notes. Now, thank you so much for listening and until the next episode. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.